This is Monstras. And welcome to another episode of Monstras. My name is Brenda, and I'm here just having woken up and rolled out of bed because I went to sleep at 2 a.m. because I was obsessed <laughs> with that Flores Lava Netflix show. So I'm sort of tired, but I'm here and I'm excited. I mean, you have an excuse, though. For you, it's 10 a.m. For me, it's like 1, and I am still in my PJs, and have literally just rolled out of bed too so (laughs) true oh my god so yeah it is 10 a.m here in california and i'm i'm tired but with me today is oh yes i'm orchidea (laughs) welcome to monstras (laughs) forgot that part yep so what are we doing today? So I'm excited because in today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. We have a guest. So our topic today is Latinx goth culture, and we are going to be interviewing an expert in the field and a fellow goth because I consider myself a, a bit of a goth I, or, or a goth in process. I never went full goth. Part of it was my, I think my mom was really not happy with the idea and part of it was it's freaking hot in texas and wearing all black all the time is hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you're more it's it's better to wear white as opposed to all black yeah. in texas especially oh my god yeah lighter colors definitely work i mean i don't wear white but lighter colors yeah <laughs> but how, how about you do you do you consider yourself a goth absolutely not <laughs> and not because Not because I hate goth. I love the aesthetic. I absolutely love it. But I just, I'm just lazy. You know, like I don't ascribe to any certain aesthetic. Like I had, I grew up with like greasers. And I talk about this a little bit in the interview. I grew up with different, a ton of different subcultures that were all Latinx based or Latinx people practiced. And so I, I really just grew up all these subcultures but I was just so lazy like I didn't put makeup on when I was a teenager I didn't you know really uh, do much to my hair like I was just like were you a tomboy yes I was definitely a tomboy I would never wear dresses even though I would have looked so good in them (laughs) I'm so regretting it (laughs) so regret it because I was like a hundred pounds back in the day Wearing zero size zero jeans. Orchidia. Oh my god! I was so t- I had no ass, no boobs, nothing. <laughs> it's a flat-chested child. So I was definitely a tomboy. So that's really the aesthetic I kind of went for. But mm. not even. I just went for like lazy. Yeah, I think for us, like in South Texas, a lot of what people wore was like norteño. So the 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 jeans with the belt buckle. Sometimes the cowboy hat, button up, sometimes the cowboy boots. I, so with the girls would do the, I don't know how to say it in English, the copete, so the bangs, but really, really like big bangs. Oh, big Uh, bangs. Yeah. So like, wait, what? So, you know, I I can't, I mean, I'm going to do it with my hand, but you can't see me because it's a podcast, but it would look like that. Okay. Okay. It's like a pompadour, but for your bangs. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. It was like really big and it was like hairsprayed till like 
I, I remember in middle school, this girl could roll it and then let it go and it would just zoom back to its original shape. That's how much hairspray it was. Yeah. Wow. You could have lit her on fire, Orquidia. Like <laughs> a stray ember would yeah. have lit her hair on fire. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was highly flammable then. <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's how people dress. Like, I know at middle school, we had, like, pep rallies and stuff. It was Norteño music. People were line dancing. And so I did not fit in, to say the least. Yeah, I, yeah, I can, I can see that being the thing in Texas. Because in LA, it's completely different. It's completely different aesthetic for, for Latinx. It was, it was greasers. It was, like, just street urban wear, you know? Like, people would wear kind of what like the cholos would wear a little bit like a little bit gangster it's always like a little tad gangster yeah we had a little bit of that but mostly norteño so yeah so i was always attracted to like the goth the goth look all black i was never pale enough to do the makeup but we'll talk about that a little bit too (laughs) so i guess we can do a little bit of the uh history of, of what we mean by goth i mean i'm assuming people know like when we say goth I'm sure that they imagine someone really pale, big, big hair, a lot of black eyeliner, black lipstick. That's kind of the general idea. A lot of black. Yeah. A lot of black and white. Yeah. A lot of black and white. Very monochrome. (laughs) But (laughs) they look like a old, old 1940s freaking Betty Boop cartoon. That's what they look like. Yeah. But with more studs. Yeah. More spikes and stuff. (laughs) Just a little darker. Yeah. scarier just a little scarier yeah so um goth or the gothic is the term that was used to describe architecture music art literature and the subculture so it it kind of applies to a lot of different things so in an article that we found by rachel k fisher she takes us back to the sacking of rome by the goths the visigoths and the ostrogoths in 200 bce so before the common era and kind of the use of the term goths there to mean like the, this group of people and their destruction of Rome and their culture. By, but by the 1500s, the term Gothic was used to describe the architecture. And it was really funny. So the architect and painter Giorgio Vasari in the 1500s used the term Gothic to refer to architecture he thought was trashy. <laughs> so for him, it was associated again with the, the, the these barbaric people that had sacked Rome and so it was a barbaric aesthetic it was a barbaric look that's why they used gothic architecture but in reality gothic architecture is just really you know it's very powerful very strong a lot of it is in France so it it seems weird that uh, this was a term used in Italy as well so in the article Fisher writes that the quote style can be described as ornate and flamboyant due to criticism it fell out of favor during a classical revival period until a gothic revival in the mid 18th century so cool yeah ornate and flamboyant is was the gothic architecture then and i think it still applies to the goths today exactly i was just about to say that totally applies still so i I like how he called it trashy, like it was, or not called it trashy, but considered it trashy, called it a barbaric aesthetic. It is very imposing. Yeah. Architecture. Yeah. Like you, you have to, like you have to stop and look at it, which again is kind of interesting to think about the, the, the goth look, like when people, you do, like you admire it, I think, because it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of different components put together and Yeah. Yeah, like I said, very. I didn't do it because it was just incredibly difficult, and I'm lazy. 
It's a lot of work, yeah. And also, again, how do you not sweat all that makeup off? In in Texas, yes. <laughs> also in LA, LA is also goddamn hot. So yes, you would you would definitely sweat it. And especially when you're a teenager and you're full of acne. Yeah. Imagine all that make oh God. Yeah. I no. <laughs> But maybe that's no, why it works you. for like in the UK, you know, where it's like different climate, not so much sun. I'm yeah, assuming. they were already naturally pale, so they <laughs> so they didn't it didn't take that much to to pale them more, you know, make them more pale. Yeah. So in 1764, Horace Walpole used the term gothic to describe his novel, The Castle of Otranto, and I kind of love that. Like he used the label gothic and was like, you know what, my shit is gothic. <laughs> So the story has supernatural and fantastic elements, including helmets falling from the sky to kill someone. What? I know. I want to read it. And it's free. So if you go to Project Gutenberg, the castle of Otranto is is free. So I need to read what? it. What? So. Yeah. That's awesome. I want to... That's so cool. Like, it just rained helmets one day and it killed one someone? Yeah, I think it was just like one helmet, but it landed on the right head or something. <laughs> it killed someone. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So this book, in the term, influenced the work of Mary Shelley, who famously wrote Frankenstein, and other other authors that fall within the, the category of Gothic literature. So, yeah, again, it's really cool. Like, he used that term to, to think about his work, and then that became a term famously used to describe a whole genre of literature. Uh, but then traveled to the U.S. So in the U.S., there's a branch of Gothic literature called Southern Gothic. So that includes the the work of Toni Morrison, Tennessee Williams, I think even Edgar Allan Poe. So Southern Gothic focuses on issues of race and discrimination and other societal problems. So it kind of, it's like the haunting of the U.S. is this history of slavery and violence against um, indigenous communities. So it's also really fascinating. It fits. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about goth music? Yes. So let's get into the music section here. So maybe the perhaps most well-known part of goth culture, right, is is the music. So performers and bands like The Cure, Bauhaus, Sushi, Sushi, I can't even say that band name. I'm not familiar with that band, so I'm not even going to try anymore. Okay. And the Banshees. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, there is obviously the aesthetic. So besides the music that, you know, is attached to the aesthetic, goth, you know, is a lifestyle. You know, this, we have, again, what we were talked about, the stereotype of like the pale skin, the black clothes. However, there are a few goths of color. Oh, some brown goths. <laughs> so there's a great article by Nadja Lev on Coil House that we can share the link to titled i am so goth i was born black what i don't i know i saw that and i was like yes the article's from 2012 so it's it's a bit dated but it's still really cool so she talks about the difficulties of being a black goth when the aesthetic is seen as paleness whiteness uh whiteness is the standard of beauty generally but definitely ascribed and and attached to the subculture so I highly recommend the article. It's from 2012, but she has links to other black goths in their blogs that can serve as a good starting point. She has this great quote from Asha Beta, a sculptor, jewelry designer, and musician who says, Many of the aesthetics of goth culture are taken from my cultural heritage. Asian, East Indian, Middle Eastern, African Egyptian, Voodoo, Haitian Caribbean, and so forth. So I still feel 
or I still felt and feel strongly that my connection to it is natural and instinctive and powerful. It was achingly difficult to be a minority within the subculture I deeply loved because it's within these that we can find acceptance and understanding where the larger society rejects us. Yeah. That's so cool. It's super powerful. And I think that's one of the things that when we think about goth culture, we don't really think about goths of color, which is, yeah. Uh, But that gets us to the heart of our episode today, where we'll be talking about Latinx and Chicanx goths, and we'll be talking to Professor Desiree Martin. uh, And I'm super excited about that. Yeah. So please enjoy this interview. And yeah. Today we are talking with Professor Desiree Martin. She is an associate professor of English at the University of California, Davis. Her work focuses on Chicanx, Latinx, and U.S.-Mexico border studies. Her award-winning book, Borderland Saints, Sanctity in Chicana and Mexican Culture, was published by Rutgers Press in 2013. I highly recommend this book. We've used it on a few episodes. I think the Santa Muerte and Curaderos episode specifically. So we're really, really excited to have you here today. And we're super, super excited to learn more about your new project. So Desiree, could you tell us about your current research project? What exactly are you working on? Yes, I am working on a book which is going to be called Untranslation, Media and Translation in Chicanx and Latinx and Border Culture. And in the book, I'm focusing on the intersection of the visual and the sonic as locations that are as crucial, if not more crucial, to the production and practices of Chicanx and Latinx translation as like any text-based or written material. So really thinking about how do we, how do Latinx people, Chicanos, Chicanas, utilize modes of translation, translation through the visual, through the sonic? That's so cool. Because yeah. I feel like whenever people do research, it's like the, the visual is always separate from the, the auditory, the sonic. Like you do sound studies versus visual right. culture. And it's really cool to hear those two things work together. Yeah. And I, and I have found that. And I, you know, at the same time, I've been fascinated by the way that sound is racialized in relation to Latinos. I mean, really, it's racialized in general, but thinking about questions of accents that Chicano and Latino people may have that are perhaps not mainstream. I'm thinking about how Spanglish is marginalized and criminalized and, 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 and other sounds that are not linguistic, like the sounds of a lawnmower or a leaf blower, you know, the, the tools that many Latinos use for, for their labor are also kind of racialized and rendered in many cases like a criminal act. Like if, if you sound like an immigrant, then you are not a citizen, essentially. That's so, really exciting yeah. work. Yeah. The other type of work that I've been engaged in are um, thinking about short projects of creative nonfiction. And so there I'm drawing upon different interests that I have, issues, questions or issues of motherhood, music, Latinx cultures, obviously always thinking about that, but also cities and gentrification. And I feel like anything that I write now will be necessarily, as for all of us, be informed by the pandemic and by you know the, the protests that, that are ongoing. Yeah. That's one of the things when you were talking about the auditory that I was thinking about. I'm going out a little bit off script, but I'm in New York and there's been a lot of fireworks around the city. I'm not mm-hmm. sure Oh my why. God, there's so just... many fireworks. It's, there have it's been across everywhere. the nation. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know why that is, but but it's the sound now that like 
I think when I hear it, my first thought is I'm annoyed by this. And there's certain like, you know, you assume certain people are, are doing the fireworks, all this sort of stuff. But then you see like the, the reports where, you know, the police are going in SWAT gear to, to different areas of Brooklyn to, to stop the fireworks and like this mm-hmm. over policing because of the sound, because of this sonic disturbance. Right, right. And I wonder too, I don't know if this happens in, in Brooklyn or in the Bay Area as much, but where I live, which is Davis and which is relatively quiet and sleepy, there are still fireworks. And there's been discussion that I've seen on sites like next door where there's a conversation like, are these gunshots? Are these fireworks? Did you hear a gunshot at the corner of, you know, X and Y? Like what, what's going on? So the, the policing, I think, is even more reinforced because it's, depending on where you are, there's m- more or less anxiety about you know, what, what's coming? What does this firework pretend? Is it actually a gunshot? Yeah. And I've, I've had actually had, oh my God, I've had an experience like that because I used to live in Fullerton and so with my parents and we were 10 minutes away from Disneyland and every night mm-hmm. at, at Disneyland, they do a big firework show, right? Yeah. So I would hear these, these, when I first moved to Fullerton, I'd hear these and I'd be like, who is shooting? every night at 9 p.m. into the sky like who is shooting their gun you know like I thought it was shots mm-hmm. but I thought it was very choreographed yeah very timely shootings that are happening at exactly I the know. same time they're always at 9 p.m. right someone like, has their alarm pain. set <laughs> oh time for shooting it's yeah. like <laughs> I was like oh wait it's the fireworks at Disneyland I'm an idiot <laughs> So uh, one of the things that uh, you're working on as well is the connection between goth culture and Latinos. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what goth culture is? Yeah. And so I should start by saying that the connection between goth culture and Latinos is practically a lifelong fascination for me because I grew up in L.A. and I belong to that culture. And all, you know, all of the young people I knew at the time were like almost exclusively Latino. And there were a lot that many, many that that were involved in goth culture. So for me, um, I define goth culture as a cultural aesthetic that at first glance seems to be centered on darkness, gloom and the macabre, but that is also um, equally focused on glamour, beauty and theatricality. And to me, that link or connection really implies a celebration of life. And so outsiders might look at some of the trappings of goth culture and think that this is focused on death, but actually it's, I think, a celebration of life. And the, the embrace of that duality, life and death, the embrace of the, you could call it the sinister beauty that goth embodies, is, I believe, foremost a collective act. It's really about community. And it's performative, but it's a communal and a mutual performativity, kind of performed like for the group, you know, for the fans. I love this idea of, of, of sinister beauty because it does, there's something comforting in the goth aesthetic and the goth mm-hmm. culture. And I, like whenever I feel down and I listen to The Cure, I feel better, even though there's this this idea that they're, they're downers. They're, they're really not. I think part of it is there's this appreciation for beauty and appreciation for how brief life is, which is also, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, there, there's something there that's comforting. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think The Cure in particular embody that contradiction maybe even more so because many of their songs are actually very poppy. And so they have music that's more kind of strictly gothic or death rock that just sounds gloomy but then they have others that sound like 
it could be Britney Spears, except for the lyrics or something. So, so they do have that contradiction going on, like at all times. I feel like we're gonna have a, cu- a few Cure fans that are gonna be really, really upset at us now. <laughs> no, but it's, I, I mean, Robert Smith himself has talked about the the pop, you know, inherent to the Cure. So, yeah, I think I hope they won't be upset. <laughs> And what other music would you actually associate with goth culture then too? What other bands besides The Cure? Right. And so because I, you know, came of age in the late 80s and early 90s, most of my touchstones are from then. And so I can't really speak to the newer stuff. Like, and even like, I, 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 like, I don't know, for example, if Marilyn Manson is considered goth, I think maybe not actually, but of the music that I liked, I would say one the main one for me is Bauhaus and Peter Murphy, the you know solo offshoot singer of Bauhaus. Love and Rockets a little bit. That's another offshoot of, of Bauhaus. The Cure, of course, Susie and the Banshees, like Christian Death. There was another band called Sex Gang Children. There were a lot of little groups and especially based in LA that seemed to be mostly, you know, primarily famous in LA and then maybe in London. So, you know, and then there are other post-punk bands that I would say were fellow travelers or maybe had an affinity with some of the the more like strictly gothic bands that, that really fused the gloominess of the music with the the sinister beauty aesthetic. So for example, Joy Division would be, you know, a post-punk fellow traveler. Let me think. You know, you the Smiths are an interesting kind of counterpoint because I think like actually they're not strictly goth their music definitely fits that mold it's post-punk but in their case it's post-punk kind of fused with like a a 60s British pop legacy or or history the the lyrics of course are you know famously dramatic and morose and you know they have like lyrics like I wear black on the outside because black is how I feel on the inside. So, you know, how much more goth can you be? But their, yeah. their fashion and their style is not goth. It's more even, I don't know, romantic, preppy. You know, there's even some affinities and I'll, you know, I can talk about this later with some of the kind of 1950s, you know, James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, like that could potentially link to the certain aspects of the Latinx cholo aesthetic, like kind of pressed white shirts and, the, you know, very kind of like pressed jeans and so on, the hair in a pompadour. And so so the, the aesthetic of the Smiths is not really goth, but the music is. So there, there's a lot of like probably fellow travelers that fit in here. And again, I couldn't speak to any more contemporary bands, but there's a lot out there that looks goth that's newer, but I think doesn't necessarily fit that mold of the kind of romantic, sinister, performative aspect that I think a band like Bauhaus does. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So then speaking of, you know, going to Latinx, it's like, what is the relationship between goth and Latinx goth specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that this is really a relationship that is, you know, multiple on the one hand, you know, for me, it's very much an L.A. thing because the the, you know, the second cradle and I think maybe like that then surpassed the first like origins of goth. Like you can consider that the goth originated in the U.K., especially in you know, London, um, Manchester. But pretty quickly, the roots of that spread to L.A. because there were many British expats, I think, in, in L.A. and those some who worked in radio stations and so on and brought that music with them. And it just, in the 1980s, exploded in Los Angeles. And so because L.A. is and always has been a Chicanx, Latinx city, 
I think that just population alone is what led to this kind of affinity or connection between the, the, the Latino culture and, and goth culture. On the other hand, though, that's not all there is, because I think it's very important to consider the, you know, whether you want to think of this as history or myth, the idea of a particular Mexican familiarity with death that is, you know, most famously characterized by indigenous celebrations of Dia de los Muertos. You know, as you know, that's a holiday celebration in which the the living create, you know, altars at home or maybe community altars, offerings in honor of their dead loved ones. Um, depending on what you believe, people either literally or symbolically or both welcome home their ancestors, you know, their their community who the who the deceased. They welcome them back to earth on November first and second. And often people will dress up as skeletons, they might use face paint, costumes to symbolize their own proximity to death that we know that you know we we are living right now but life is very brief it could be cut short at any time and so we always have that connection not only to our dead loved ones but to de- to death itself as we live like in our bodies the the dead loved ones are always with them especially during the time of dia de los muertos but really at all times you might be touched by death and so that that connection i think is one that's you know whether mexican-american chicanx goths think about it or not that is a connection that i think is culturally and historically there for them yeah it makes i mean it makes sense i i i always am weirded out by you know people saying oh my parents don't think about death or my parents don't think about their at the end of their life my parents talk about it a lot they don't plan for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but they <laughs> they talk about it oh and they're like yeah, yeah you know Dying is nice. Like dying is nice because I, I can rest. Yeah. Is what my parents usually say. Yeah. So it's 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 interesting that connection with death and, and and why I guess Latinx people gravitated towards goth because of that. Yeah. And I and I do think that's a real connection. Again, like whether you sit there and, you know, analyze it or, you know, think about your relation to Mexican indigenous history or not, there is a cultural I don't know, milieu that so many Chicano, Latino, Mexican-American people grow up in. I mean, you mentioned your parents. My parents have passed away already, but they were just like what you described. They would talk about it all the time. Like, you know, like when I'm not here, you, you have to do this and that and, you know, plan ahead. Or sometimes even like with a guilt trip of like, you'll be sorry when I'm not here. Like, you kind of joke. Yeah. But, you know, and, and interestingly, as you mentioned, didn't plan for it, but would, yeah. but talked about it a lot. <laughs> so, so I think it's just, that's what so many of our elders do. They, it's yeah. it's part of everyday life for them. And exactly. Do you think this this connection too? Because I'm thinking of like your the way you're talking about the 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 the, the importance of geography, right? Like this is mm-hmm. how big this was in LA, and and part of it being the expats. But do you think it was like a scene that was ready for that? Thinking about like the the punk bands that were in LA, or even like art collectives like ASCO that mm-hmm. embraced that aesthetic before the 80s. I think so. I think so. And there were definitely small local punk bands in LA coming up, you know, or post-punk bands coming up in the the late 70s. Even the the glam rock bands that were popular in LA beginning in the 1970s, you know, even leading up to this doesn't really count necessarily, but even like a band like uh, Guns N' Roses who were half LA natives and half transplants and they would have been the 80s. But they still I think absorbed and performed a lot of the 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 glamour aesthetic 
that, you know, maybe taking roots from Iggy Pop and the Stooges, from David Bowie. And so even if their music didn't sound like punk or post-punk, they were drawing upon that aesthetic of, of glamour and drama and, and performativity. And so I think, yes, there are other roots in, in LA. And, 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 you know, it was, I think in the 70s and 80s, much more space, probably, you know, like, like many cities in this country where artists could occupy space more freely. The cities were not as gentrified, you know, they were certainly segregated, but it was easier at that time, you know, more economically feasible to move there as an artist, as a musician, as, you know, someone who's working in our collective and, and, and survive, unlike now, unfortunately. Oh, I wanted to ask about this connection or this idea of like goth being an aesthetic, but it's also kind of this musical movement. Is, is it a lifestyle? How would you mm-hmm. define it? How are these different components coming together? I think it it is both an aesthetic and a lifestyle. I, you know, I feel that it's goth is concerned with performing the self, but it's always performing the self in community. And it's about really, you know, sharing fan cultures of music, of dress, you know, hairstyles, makeup, body piercing, tattoos, you know, literature and art in different kinds of spaces. And I think over time, these have been spaces that are both physical and virtual and, you know, across all kinds of media. And so I think, you know, the the dark and theatrical dress and, and music that, that goths, really favor is best expressed collectively. Like whether you're meeting up at concerts, at clubs, you know, on social media, or, you know, now in our times, maybe on Zoom, it's, I think it's, you know, it's not, it's not appreciated as much in a vacuum. It's, it's not just a solitary individual act, even though outsiders might think that this is doom and gloom, navel gazing of some kind, it's actually performed for the community. So in that, that's why I think it is a lifestyle. That's super fascinating because I always, I think the the assumption is when people think about goths is they do think of, of someone, like the individual, this idea of, you know, him him or her being lonely, being by themselves, the, that that emptiness. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're right. It is this this recognition and this the importance of building community. Yeah. And, and I think recognizing so. each other through dress and through through fashion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you don't go to all that effort to put on the dress, the makeup, the hair, the tattoo. Like you you don't do that if you don't want to share it with others. I mean, it's, it's not a solitary act. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not... And I had it. A... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Orkidia. No, I was just going to say, I follow one a, a subreddit that's goths. It's just goths. That's the name of it. Not just goths, but goths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people post, you know, pictures of themselves, a lot of selfies and things like that. And a lot more recently. And I, I think part of it is, is like you're saying, this this virtual community, mm-hmm. especially now when it's difficult to have a, a, a community, yeah. a live community, I guess, in person community. Yeah. Kind of this and, recognition online. Right. And now this is a virtual space that we need to have during this pandemic moment. But I think the roots of that performing the self for the community have always been there in goth culture. I mean, I, I remember in high, when I was in high school and in college, friends of mine who were more involved in goth culture than I was, and definitely more absorbed into it, would sometimes pose for photo shoots or send in photographs of themselves totally dressed up in their, you know, goth finest for zines and magazines that existed in, you know, LA and California at the time, the Bay Area. And it was, you know, again, like showing other fans like this is my style this is how I look this is what I want to show to the world yeah that's awesome and I wanted to actually ask you too Desiree is there an aesthetic that is specifically Latinx 
goth? You know, or are I think yes. I think that definitely there's there are crossings, but I feel that in recent years a lot more of the imagery of Day of the Dead, of Dia de los Muertos, has become known in the mainstream, and so that's has I would say filtered from. Mexican American, Mexican indigenous, Chicanx culture to a wider mainstream, including that of of goths. And I think that you know goth culture always involved perhaps dressing up like what could look like a Mexican Katrina, like you know the the figure of the like sort of Victorian era Mexican skeleton woman who was popularized by by Posada, and that could also have links to British Victorian dress. But there are, I think, specificities that would, you know, render this look more, I don't know, identifiably Mexican or indigenous, like someone dressing up that looks like a Katrina, like maybe like the high necks, ruffled, you know, lace collar, you know, maybe now again, like use of more skeletal imagery, face paint, perhaps. And so I think, I think it's, you can't strictly say this one thing came from Mexican culture or didn't, but there are definitely affinities and crossings that have always been present that I, I'm sure, and I mean, I know many Chicanx and, and Mexican goths recognize as separate aspects of of their culture as well. That's awesome. So then one uh, next question that I really wanted to ask is like, why is it even important to think about Latinx goths? Like, why is it even important for us to talk about this community itself? Yeah, and I think it is very important to center the presence of Latinx goths. Um, or to think about the importance of, you know, Latinidades to goth culture more broadly. I think in that way, we're able to f- really emphasize the importance of contradiction in goth culture, especially in relation to that celebration of life and death or death and life, because uh, Chicanos and Latinos are so immersed in contradiction in their lives anyway, like even regardless of feeling a familiarity with death and life or something like that. Chicanos and Latinos, I think, have a, a monopoly on contradiction in, in many ways, or, or at least or that's, their, that's their whole way of being. I think about the Chicana, Chicano condition, the spaces and identities that we inhabit that are, as un, this is a, a, a quote from Gloria Zaldúa, they're neither aquí, neither allá, neither from here nor from there. And it's, that might seem like a negative condition or state, but actually it's life affirming. It, it affirms the the continuity and presence of Chicanos and Latinos. And I'll just give you one more quote from Enzel Dua that I think is is very goth because it's about, you know, I don't know, like not not existing, but persisting. And so, so this is the quote. A veces no soy nada ni nadie, pero hasta cuando no lo soy, lo soy. So the translation would be at times, I am nothing, no one, but even when I am not, I am. And so I love that quote because I feel like it's really about a life-affirming presence, even in the face of negation, showing just how you know resilient and um, you know, persistence—the the persistence and resistance of Chicanas and Chicanos—and you know it's also I say it's goth because it really does remind me of that celebration of life within death, death within life that is really central to goth culture. So maybe Gloria Zaldú didn't know it, didn't know it, but she was also a goth, I think, <laughs> in her own way. <laughs> I love I love that that I mean I love the idea of Ansaldo as a goth. I feel like that needs to be some artwork out there giving her some that would be I don't fun. Know, a lot of black clothing or something. Yeah. 
but um, this the the temporality, right? The the idea of of how how brief the how the brief moment we're here for, mm -hmm. and the importance of doing something in that time of having yeah. that be meaningful. Right, and also what what lives on beyond you. I this is a an idea that. I think is very kind of known within Latinx, Chicanx culture, but one that I've seen quite a bit lately in the protests, like on signs, the, the idea of they thought that we were, they thought they could bury us, but they did not know that we were seeds. And sometimes you'll see it written in Spanish. And so again, I think that that, that reminds me of Anzaldúa's notion of, you know, you, there are times when I feel like nothing, like a self-negation, but even when I feel that low, or even when I am, you know, utterly marginalized, not seen, um, not understood, and my body is policed and criminalized, even then I am. And so again, thinking of that idea of the, you know, that you, you, you're trying to bury us, but you don't know that our roots will grow anyway. So, yeah. I like that connection of, of, of marginalization with goth culture. Like that's that's interesting, and maybe another reason, or I think you have spoken about this, but another reason why Latinx people gravitated, or a lot of them gravitated towards goth, right? Because mm -hmm. it is kind of goth culture is not at least maybe I don't know. You tell me in the eighties, was it even that mainstream? Like, was it even like people? Did people look at you funny when you walked down the street? Yeah, and... you know, yes. And again, like I was a kid and I wanted to be different. You know, I was like whatever, you know, fifteen, and I like I want I wanted people to look at me funny. But yes, you're right. It wasn't that mainstream. It was not. You know, there was no hot topic in nineteen ninety. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if it's a good thing that there's Hot Topic now or who even shops there right now. But, you know, I mean, the, the I guess like the mollification of goth culture or punk was not, you know, it, it, it wasn't there as much. I mean, and, and yet even then, even when I was in high school and college, I do remember in music and just hearing like other people talk, there was still in some ways quite a bit of policing or controlling of the goth image of, you know, you're not authentic enough or you know you're a sellout or or whatever and so anyway to, to answer the question no i don't think it was that mainstream at the time it, mm -hmm. it isn't That's, i would say it is now yeah now it feels like almost um it's like soft goth hey, yeah you know like it's it's like <laughs> that's I, a good way to put it <laughs> it's 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 so much softer and like so much more palatable in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's because we're now used to the aesthetic. And so if I see someone walking down the street, I'll be like, okay. And then I'll just keep walking. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's, it's not shocking. No. And, you know, I, I'm sure it was more or less shocking at the time too. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have like a bunch of facial piercings or anything because my mother would have killed me and they didn't allow that at Catholic <laughs> school. Like I couldn't dye my hair, you know, the colors I wanted to when I was in high school. But, and so there, there were definitely, you know, let's say, practitioners of goth that were far more I don't know shocking looking than anything that I ever tried to wear but but still it it was not you know as recognized maybe the 1980s and early 90s yeah I was gonna say because I grew up in the 90s and uh -huh. I wanted to be goth like I wanted so bad to dress like that and it was just not rara you were weird like that yeah. was the word like people yeah. would would still so I, I think it's a lot like i grew up in a small town it was mostly mexican mexican-american and i think mm -hmm. old it's all 
it seems to be like older generations just I mean my mom yeah. would have hated it yeah. I couldn't dye my hair till I left for college and then she cried when she saw me with pink hair so <laughs> it wasn't even like the full aesthetic it was like just pink hair well I'll say and this is a, this is a story that I've told a lot of my friends but my parents like they kind of tolerated it they were just like yeah what I mean you know again like I couldn't have any piercings or anything like that and but they I remember my father he would make fun of me like in a gentle way and he would say like you look like my abuelita like <laughs> after she was widowed and she like took to wearing black for you know the rest of her life and whatever and so so again like you know you, you were weird but you were also identifiable in a specifically mexican way because like you know you look like la viejita que está de luto you know, like wearing like the black for so whatever for a year or for three years or for the rest of the life because they're a widow now or something <laughs> so. that's, that's awesome. really sweet it's mean yeah. but sweet which i it's, think is like it, it but Latino it was humor. but but now i'm like oh i love that memory it's, it's it makes me laugh yeah so one of the big icons for mexican and mexican-american communities especially in like punk and goth is morrissey so can you talk a little bit about him and i recently last few years a lot of problematic and racist statements have come out from him he's been very vocally anti-black anti-people of color which i yeah so can you talk about like the fandom and the response to that yeah and i think there are many many disappointed chicano fans right now and then there are also others who choose to look the other way and not think about it but i mentioned this already but i should start by saying that morrissey and the smiths are not like really goth musically i think they are they're post-punk you know and then again like their type of post-punk fuses with 60s british rock pop they share affinities because of their lyrics and so on but the style and fashion that they used is is definitely not goth and also because i love the smiths far more than I ever have or will love Morrissey. I, I want to separate Morrissey as a solo <laughs> artist from the Smiths as a band. Johnny Marr and the Smiths had as much of an influence on their music and persona as Morrissey did. And so for Morrissey, you know, yes, of course, he's been an icon for Mexican and Mexican American communities for many years, especially in LA. There are as you probably know, many, you know, studies and articles and documentaries about this. Uh, a lot of Chicanx critics and journalists have written about it. There's a really good book written by uh, Melissa Mora Hidalgo, which is called Moslandia, Morrissey Fans in the Borderlands. And she's also an L.A.-based, you know, grew up in L.A., Chicana Morrissey fan. And so, you know, she she and others identify I would say the connection or the the love that Mexican and Chicanx people have of Morrissey through the lens of his like kind of immigrant position or the fact that he's an outsider. This is usually connected to his identity as the son of Irish immigrants in Manchester. There's also a lot of emphasis on his maudlin, you know, kind of dramatic lyrics. Often they've been connected to uh, the same kind of tendencies that you see in in Mexican ranchera music and his his 1950s you know fashion style and kind of butch kind of romantic which i think does seem at times like not that different from some elements of zoot suit or, or cholo style and so there you know there's all those all those connections there at the same time morrissey on you know to honestly has always had these xenophobic and racist tendencies but i think the difference now is that 
maybe he's going a little bit crazier and he's just expressing them <laughs> so much more. And there are so many avenues for him to express these, you know, these terrible attitudes, like in like, all terms of social media and so on. And he's made, you know, totally racist statements, you know, as you said, about Muslim immigrants, you know, Chinese immigrants in the UK. Morrissey has always been totally anti-British monarchy, but at the same time, it seems like he's a super like British nationalist, like maybe he'd be in favor of Brexit because he hates immigrants. And so I think that, you know, there's there's been a lot more awareness in recent years of his abhorrent beliefs because he has expressed them so much more freely in, in the media. Like maybe he's just totally going off the deep end. But I think that, I mean, I hate to say this because I, I used to love him too, but I think that the roots of that have always been there. And I think that we as fans were maybe just not as able to see them or they weren't as available to us. And so now his beliefs are totally known. I think it has affected his fans. Um, I know it's affected me. I wouldn't go to one of his concerts anymore. I'm, you know, I'm sad to say that, but I wouldn't. And I do think that any, any Mexican or Chicanx fan who admires Morrissey because he's an outsider or he's like the child of immigrants the way that they might be really should stop and consider the way that established immigrant groups in any given country have the potential to assimilate or sell out in very dangerous ways that then, you know, really further racism, prejudice against newer or more marginalized groups. And so I think for our own communities, Mexican, you know, Chicanx communities, I think we need, especially now in our moments of national and global protests against police brutality and um, kind of reevaluating the racism in our own communities, we really need to take the time to examine our own historical and, and current tendencies toward anti-blackness in particular, towards anti-indigeneities. And, you know, we need to educate ourselves and, and others about that, about them, in, in order to, you know, combat those tendencies to promote anti-racism, which I think, sadly, many people in our communities haven't been able to do. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I've never, I don't think I've ever listened to Morrissey, but to me, it sounds like it's time to say fuck Morrissey. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it is. I hate to say that, but I think, I think it is because he's, you know, like, how can you be someone who's celebrating him for being an immigrant when he's totally anti-immigrant? <laughs> like he's, he's completely racist. So I think you're right. I think, you know, knock down the statue, just like they're knocking down the statues of Columbus right now and (laughs) knock knock down the icon. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, that's why sometimes you can't put your icons on a pedestal either. I'm so scared of putting anyone on a pedestal anymore, especially men, because it's just like allegation after allegation after allegation that's just popping up, you know, it's just like, it's so hard. So when you find like the right people i'm like oh i want to put them on a pedestal but i'm like no you're only human (laughs) yeah and i think that's what's so like i like this idea of using morrissey as this example of what what happens when we become complacent in who we listen to and who we like right like Mm -hmm. are we are we critical of what we're consuming and if we are that means kind of constantly questioning it not not romanticizing it so not like you're saying brenda not putting it on a pedestal but constantly being like okay where do they stand now where do they stand now like i'm thinking Totally not related, but Bad Bunny. 
And the pushback, right, that he he was very vocal about gendered violence, trans violence, and there was silence about anti-blackness and Latino communities and just generally and how he finally spoke up, but right, like what was necessary for him to speak up mm-hmm. and yeah. valuing some of what he says, but also understanding that he's a person and he obviously has issues to, to work through. Yeah. And that leads us to one of our, our final questions to you, Desiree, is considering you know the current political and racial climate like do you think there is a revolutionary power in goth culture in being goth Mm -hmm. and in standing up and being like i am goth (laughs) yeah i think there is but i would follow orchidia's uh, idea to always question and always examine your idols your icons your own position and role in this culture. I do think though that there is revolutionary power in goth culture and I think that it mainly stems from the inherent collectivity of goth culture. And so again like you might think at first glance that the, you know, theatricality of goth culture is an example of self-centered navel-gazing, like, you know, demanding people to look at me, like, you know, I am, you know, another weirdo that walks down the street, <laughs> you know, look look at me and this is for me. But because I firmly believe that goth culture is always already collective. It's and and it is also a culture that decenters or shakes up expectations, especially in the ways that it intersects with Latinx culture. And so for me, Latinx goth culture demonstrates that neither mainstream or standard goth culture nor Latinidades are homogenous. You know, they're not monoliths. The, the Latinx subject in LA or anywhere is not only um, a cholo or a migrant worker or a domestic worker. At the same time, it is those things and it can also be goth or it can be more. Definitely it can be, I mean, there's an example of this, like the, the, the cholo goth, like Orquidia and I have mm-hmm. talked about this, but the, the LA band Prayers, which is led by Rafael Reyes, explicitly builds itself as cholo goth. And that's proof of, you know, we are trying to shake up that expectation of what a cholo is of what a goth is and i think too that chicanx and latinx goths have a long history and experience of negotiating cultures like goth that might have been received or understood as maybe mainstream but definitely like maybe more so white cultures and making them their own for me goth culture in la like is latinx culture and in that way Chicanx and Latinx goths have been really decolonizing goth culture since its origins in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And whether they know it or not, I think that is a revolutionary gesture. But at all times, we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're not reinforcing stereotypes, prejudices. We need to to make sure that we are promoting anti-racism. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately or not, a new task for many people including for many latinx people yeah and i i think it's a scary prospect but but i like this idea of identifying kind of identifying the importance of these different identity categories and how they work together in creating our identities and that these are not separate right like i'm not the 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 weird stuff i like the rara is not mm-hmm. separate from my mexicanness right these mm-hmm. things are connected and, and create something 
yeah. know, to create this synchronous uh, culture that we're a part of. Yeah. And that's constantly evolving, which is what, why I think because I saw an article about how goth culture is still alive, which seems was kind of ridiculous because goth is about death and kind of going into this idea of like the, 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 the subculture is so popular unlike other subcultures. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is this, that it seems to be constantly evolving and incorporating new ideas. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing that I've gotten from this conversation too is the idea of, you know, you have... Latinx people who are kind of marginalized, even though we're we're now at that point where we're the majority, we're still kind of marginalized in in terms of representation and stuff. Yeah. But with being goth, it's almost like, and I know you've talked about this, but it's almost like you can't ignore me. Like I'm dressed in this very loud way, mm-hmm. and you and and I may be from a marginalized community, but you cannot ignore me, and I will not be ignored. Yeah, it's definitely on display, and so you know you can't. You can't be made invisible, I think, in many ways when you look like that, when you're like, as you say, like loud and proud, dressed up in this, you know, dramatic and sinister, beautiful way. And, you know, it's something else that kind of pops up in my head as well that I'm kind of randomly throwing at you. I have like two random questions. Well, actually, let's start with one random question. (laughs) What do you think about Latin America's affinity right now and Latinx people's affinity with K-pop? Yeah. You know, I think in some ways there has always been a culture of, I guess you could say, borrowing in Latin America. I mean, I think in Latin America they have, they're so accustomed. I mean, I I know the Mexican case best, but they are so used to hearing music that is not in Spanish. Obviously, they have rock and espanol on the radio. The people listen to rancheras or, or, you know, cumbia. That's all there. But the local you know, radio stations in, in Mexico City, for example, many of them are like switching on like constantly between a song in Spanish to, you know, from Mexico or from Spain or from Argentina or wherever to then like, you know, a Britpop song to whatever, like other mainstream pop. And so they, the fans, music fans in Mexico are, are and I think all of Latin America is very accustomed to hearing music not in Spanish. And so I think it's an easy kind of link or jump to move to K-pop. I think that in the United States and, you know, maybe also in, in the UK, fans have not been used to listening to music that's not in English. And it's, it's very, you know, kind of othering, I think, for them in a way that it is not in Latin America. And so that, I mean, that's just my kind of sense that K-pop is another borrowed musical culture to absorb in spaces and places that are used to doing that that's awesome i I just had that really random it was very random but i thought of that about like music and and all these different subcultures and i was like oh yeah that's yeah. right k-pop's huge in latin america <laughs> yeah and in, i had heard that latinx communities because i know my sister was so into it she would it was so funny she would sit my mom down and she'd be like, look at this K-pop band, vi- you know, video. And and my mom would be like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's so sweet. And so, I, you know, I don't know how old your sister is, but I wonder if, you know, TikTok is a factor because, you know, again, like, and these are all things that Generation Z really like, you know, younger and younger groups of, of kids are like, this is how they learn about music and culture through different platforms online that's that, you know, by the time that... I hear about it. It's like old news or something. But, but you know, I mean, I think in in the 
Latinx communities in, in, the, in the U.S., I mean, I'm sure that one way to disseminate all that music is through TikTok and other platforms of that kind. I wonder, too, now that you mentioned this, if there's any kind of connection between youth cultures, Latinx youth cultures in the U.S. and interest in K-pop and the way that K-pop, I heard, has been used as like a guerrilla tactic against the police did you hear about this and so right and so i guess like i guess people have been jamming police like you know microphones or radio signals and and so on with k-pop and i wonder what i mean i don't know but i wonder what this has to do with young latino fans with i think i'm sure with youth cultures in general that this is the music that they're listening to and this is what they can utilize as a a guerrilla tactic, a mode of resistance. I've, I've read articles about it. It's it's so funny that they're they're like, oh yeah, you know, we're looking for pictures of of brutality or or, or by protesters or mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And and yeah, they they sent in fan cams, which is just like clips of their favorite K-pop stars doing dances and stuff. Oh, cool! And just <laughs> flooded flooded them with with k-pop and they're like here you go it's it's absolutely fascinating i think yeah and so that that again i mean it has to be a manifestation of where youth culture is right now because you know from my perspective and i think this did happen too it, it makes sense to me that protesters would use something like you know the song fuck the police Mm-hmm. to jam up the radio signals they they did do that to me it's like okay yeah that makes total sense but more you know presence and more common appears to be like this use of k-pop to do that and so that's just that's what the youth culture that's what the kids are into and so that's <laughs> yeah what... it's 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 not even like what the kids are into well it is it is definitely that but mm-hmm. i feel like there's a there's a level of just hilariousness you know they're yeah. using they're using this t- this kind of type of humor to use it against the system mm-hmm. and against you know police brutality, which is fantastic. It, it is. always has like that trolly, that trolling yeah. internet troll kind of sense sense of humor to to a lot of these protests actually or tactics. Yeah, uh, that happen online. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah. but thank you for answering that random question. No, Yo, you're welcome. <laughs> it, was, it was fun to think through it, but I think you know the the system is not well versed in social media and internet culture like as much as donald trump thinks he's like you know the master you know of twitter someone like you know alexandria ocasio cortez can dance circles around him on her twitter and so so this is the domain of the youth and you know it should be yeah is there anything else you would like to to say before we wrap up or any last thoughts yeah i just want to thank both of you for allowing me to take this kind of joint trip down nostalgia road, but also like a re-examining and re-examination of what goth culture can mean today um, in light of, you know, as Brenda, you said, like in light of the fact that Latinos, Latinx people, Latino culture is a, that's really no longer, my, especially not in California or in Texas or New York, like we are not the minority. And <laughs> so, and, and, and I think, you know, nationwide that will soon be the case. And so we do need to re-examine those connections between what might seem to be a, ma- a mainstream white culture and historical roots in Chicanx and Latinx communities, and also remind ourselves to understand our own potential role in, you know, how these cultures might, you know, be co-opted, you know, in the service of assimilation or, you know, being a sellout or, or whatever. Like we have to see, like, how can we find that path toward 
anti-racist thinking and bring that back to our communities who I think, you know, we need to remember it, but our entire communities need to learn it and know it as well. Yeah. Thank you so well much. Said. You're welcome. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to continue supporting us, please leave a review. Just let us know what you think. And if you have any monsters, creatures, or legends you want us to cover, let us know in the comments or go to our website. We have a website. Yeah. It's Monstras podcast.com check it out also subscribe and follow us on social media we are at twitter i am arguing with people constantly on twitter so come argue with me at monstras podcast or email us at monstras podcast at gmail.com so let us know and thanks so much guys bye